Hey everyone, welcome back to Ta for Ta. We sat down with Bianca Ho, COO and co-founder of Claire AI, in her Hong Kong office, a nondescript hideaway above the busy streets of Saing Poon District. As we began chatting, we revealed more about her company's hypothesis on the world of letting everyone speak in their local language. Also covered, crouching tigers and hidden dragons and how everyone on her team is doing something impossible. Let's listen in. So without too much of a preamble, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about Claire AI, the company that you co-founded and now serve as COO? Hi, everyone on the show, uh, on Tafa Ta. Uh, it's Bianca from Clary AI. I'm the co-founder of um, the company. I've co-founded it with Ken, uh, who's my technical co-founder. Uh, he's actually the CEO and I'm the COO. Um, it really comes from a mixture of, so what we do is we uh, provide an AI interaction management system for enterprise to have, um, to empower them to have natural conversation at scale in a reliable and consistent and natural manner. So what that means to us more specifically on naturalness is that we want uh, everyone to speak in their local languages. So we support 10 Asian languages and also we have an enterprise backend that allows them to do all the configurations. So uh, what we're really aiming for is to uh, roll out um, conversational assistant at scale, say like 1 million uh, users uh, per day. So that's really where we want to shoot for. The value we bring to our customers is that uh, we bring automation without a lot of technical uh, configurations that you can you know, just use as a business user. So some of our clients actually automate 87% of all their customer support inquiries. Um, so we're very excited to uh, work with them. And uh, the other part is also we look for partners who uh, will grow with us. Um, so that's also what we learned a lot along the way that they will give us a lot of feedback um, and then we can incorporate that into the uh, product. So tell me more about the conversational digital assistant. Why is this different, for example, than a chatbot? And why do companies even need this service? Do you call them CDAs or? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we, we have um, had a huge debate about around what to call it. And I think part of it is um, that we're now increasingly more careful with words. And I felt that uh, words not only convey meaning, but it also conveys a deeper sense of understanding. Um, so we were also debating internally, right, like how to call, um, you know, whether we have a problem or we are at a one star type of like stage. And then we're one moving to, stage. yeah, one star and then move to t two stars and moving to thir three and four. But like a good thing is that you're still in a star, right? Like, so you felt that you're moving towards uh, progress and you have the faith to kind of like move towards a better uh, experience, customer experience in general. Because I mean, in a startup, you have a lot of problems that you need to tackle. Um, so that doesn't get too overwhelmingly uh, difficult uh, for everyone. Um, so, you know, back to uh, conversational assistance. Uh, what what is really different from a chatbot um, is that it has to have a deeper level of understanding. So we build our NLP natural language processing um, engines and algorithms on our own. So we do tune the data. Um, we uh, you know, take our clients' data and tune the uh, language model each time. And we've tuned it more specifically for specific industries, such as finance, telco, government. So we've done it more specifically on how you talk about things. And it's also contextual, right? Because now 
humans live in a 3D world, right? Like you're usually at one place doing one thing. And, you know, you also feel a certain way, right? And then that's very hard for a um, computer to understand. So the first is definitely understanding what you speak. Um, so in the past, you know, computers obviously speak in ones and zeros, and now they speak in codes. And, you know, next it would be a natural interface that you can talk to it. Um, so, so that's what we're kind of moving towards. And then we were looking into how do you create more... Uh, contacts and helps the computer um, or help the end user to speak to the computer in an easier way uh, that generates value for the company. Interesting. So you mentioned that Claire AI focuses on 10 Asian languages. Why Asia? Yeah. You know, what's unique about Asian languages? Yeah. So I think I will allude to Cantonese because uh, that's my mother language. Um, it's interesting. Sometimes, you know, you always look back and you're wonder you know why you did a certain thing and and now you do do realize so I actually took a course on Cantonese although I am native (laughs) back in school and I I was fascinated about Cantonese as always and I um, just uh, dug up a book uh, from you know back in uh, in my high school years that I bought again about Cantonese dialect so I've always been very fascinated about this very lively language it's very much um, invented you know there are a lot of like new words every day and um, and that's really fun as a language. I think that creates a lot of uh, challenge for anyone to um, build an understanding model uh, around this language because it has mixed language. You know, you speak, um, I mean, for you as a Westerner in Hong Kong, oftentimes you hear people like, oh, there's an apple and there's an orange, right? Like they would have words or I want to get uh, my account uh, balance and they probably say account in an entire Chinese sentence. So that has added the complexity of <clears throat> building a natural language model that caters to these languages. Um, and I think similarly for Asia as well, you know, which is where most of our clients are, um, is that uh, Asian languages most often have slangs. There is an official version of you know the the language, but there's also slang version, right? So I think that is really really interesting as mixed language, you know, even in uh, Tagalog, it's called Taglish. So it's Tagalog and English that they really use on a daily basis. And I felt, you know, Asia, um, the third, not only the languages difference uh, and what makes it more challenging is that a lot of people like messaging. So actually you see, you know, you go to every Asian country, they have one, you know, favorite chat app. And literally if you have friends all over Asia, you would download like 10 apps on your phone. Or you make all your friends download WeChat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're like, oh, this is the only thing that right. you can do. So it seems like everyone in Hong Kong uses WhatsApp. Yeah. WhatsApp, WeChat, um, yeah. Line. I think sure. quite a few people use that as well. So uh, Facebook Messenger, you know, it's a very versatile. I, Hong Kong has doesn't have really like its own app, you know, it's only 7 million people, but then it does adapt to kind of different cultures, what friends you have, you know, a lot of friends, uh, of your friends are in China, then you use WeChat, a lot of your friends are in, say, Japan, then a lot of times you use Line. So that's what we realized, um, that Asian have a stronger kind of messaging culture, they do like to talk about things um, and chat. Uh, So we've seen that phenomenon much stronger than say a Western or US counterpart. Whereby even if you were just, you know, in the metro in, say, New York versus in Hong Kong, you know, in New York, a lot of people are reading books. 
because you don't have any service yeah right like so there's like a lot of like small things in life that you do see the difference in hong kong everyone's like glued to their phone and they're playing games they're you know checking the stocks um and things like that so i think that's interesting to as if not like a cultural thing that we see um observe in asia and why we focus on asia so it's more a cultural and also technical challenge that we see it seems like exploring Asia and exploring the markets is something that you have experience with. From my research, <laughs> I saw that you had exposure to the development of products in the China market. Now in Hong Kong, what are some of your observations that you may be able to share with listeners that haven't necessarily had the chance to observe themselves? Yeah, sure. Um, I was exploring the China market and I felt China is very different from Hong Kong, it's very, as a market, right? Like, it's very different from, you know, other Asian countries, Japan particularly, and Korea. They're very, you know, an ecosystem on their own. So I'll loot more to China first, and then I'll also go into other countries. China is an interesting market. It felt like you have to be very, very dedicated to have a Chinese operation set up in a way that does cater to Chinese um, characteristics <clears throat> uh, particularly on the software space. And uh, you also need to be careful which space you are in, right? Like if you're a social network, that's a very different thing from your uh, you know, productivity software. It's also very different from uh, being a locational service, right? So it depends on which industry and which vertical you're in. I was exploring China for productivity software. Um, and what we realize is the other part is the cultural, again, is quite different, right? Um, not a lot of people in China use this uh, email. And the software that I was working for uses email as a primary base um, of communication. So that creates like a trouble where um, a difficulty for a software who was not more for a messaging tool into something that you have to adop adapt to that in China. So that's a very interesting observation as to how people work, right? Like you see a lot of people in China having a lot of WhatsApp, uh, WeChat groups. Um, they, you know, primarily talk on messaging, you know, even QQ, they use it a lot internally or externally with their clients or um, partners. So that's what we observe. Um, the other part is also whether um, one phenomenon that we haven't quite solved for is whether people are willing to pay for software. Because a lot of softwares in China are free. Like? Like, basically everything, right? Like, they have a free word processor. They have free... I mean, word processor is the most fundamental of all kind right. of productivity tool. They have free ones, and people are happy to use it with, you know, like, ads flashing by. It seems like there's more of a comfort with the lack of privacy. Yes. Compared to the kind of hype in the States, for example, where... There needs to be complete transparency and there is this friction between providers and customers. Yeah, I think um, it's also how culturally they look at it differently. So say like, you know, in U.S., like people look at guns as a right to own. And like me, I've never thought about owning a gun, would never kind of think about it either. Um, and I don't see it as a right that I have. So I think it's also kind of cultural kind of like nuances that does have that difference. People seem to be very comfortable with, you know, whatever you write on WeChat, you just need to be careful, right? Like, because you don't, like, they know that it will be 
read. You just need to be comfortable with everything you write being public. Yeah, yeah. 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 So they're just like comfortable uh, with that because they know that is um, inevitable that people would uh, look at that. So um, I think it's also being comfortable with kind of like what and um, and whether I mean we I'm a normal private citizen and I don't think that anything I write is of any kind of like confidentiality. But people do kind of like pay more attention on. You know what messaging app that they use. You know what they speak on the internet, and particularly in China. So I think that has very much accepted as a norm, um, and uh, that is also uh, where I would say it doesn't have as much as a strong uh, influence to a productivity tool, mainly because productivity tool is very much you know monitored by the company, and as long as you have the audit log, it'll be fine. Uh, but yes, that's tr- very true on the overall nuance that people are do expect that whatever they write, um, private, public, you know, be it romantic or work related, everything would be kind of uh, read at one point. So, so that that is also kind of like difference in terms of navigating the China landscape ecosystem and how as a software company what you need to comply to you know those are very western ideals um and values that people are very used to uh, again like a gun kind of like rights type of thing um where we do need to have that communication very well established and understood by our western companies and even beyond culture we've seen some structural barriers Last year, China was requiring all companies to submit surveillance checks and required that these companies also put their servers in the country. Um, How do you think that companies will be able to navigate this in the future? I actually think, um, as a company, one of the most important um, decisions that you can make is what countries to enter and how you put your resources behind that. Because a lot of times we get a lot of investors asking us, you know, why don't you look at China now? Why aren't you selling into China? And all those questions. And obviously, it's very obvious to them because it's just right up across the border. And we are, we speak the same languages. So it's technically much easier to sell there. Um, as a company, again, you know, alluding to what you just mentioned, I would say the resources you need to expand in, say, in Europe, in Asia, in China, and US, those are completely different sets of resources that you need. And how they buy softwares are very different as well. You know, they do expect, you know, people to be on the phone, you know, they still expect people to kind of come travel to them uh, if they give you a phone call, um, you know, for like two, three hours just to, you know, see you for one hour, right? Like they do have that expectation versus in the West is very much a self-service type of market. so it's also how people work um, that places a huge difference in how software are sold and how distributed uh, overall, as well as, you know, kind of architectural type of challenges, right? Like you need to have your service in China. You need to kind of probably segregate different parts of your software um, in order to kind of be compliant. Um, and also that fits the local kind of culture, uh, work culture, particularly on productivity type of tools. So um, 
I think it's a huge decision for any company to make, either to get in China, get out of China, um, how much to invest in China. And obviously, it's a huge piece of meat that everyone wants a, a bite off. But in reality, there there is a lot of resources that you need to devote to. And one of the very interesting um, an- analogies, that, um, like uh, examples that I heard is that um, this uh, guy from the U.S. who used to work for this company, and um, he came to Asia and he moved to Singapore actually without visiting Asia. I'm like, that is a crazy uh, idea. But I think what was very interesting that he talked about was that he was traveling all across Asia and he realized how much hassle it is to, you know, switch your currency, you know, switch your phone number, you know, you have a different, like different skin tones, right? Like that's not as much, but like you speak different languages, you know, what they're used to is very different, right? Like, so there's a lot of aspects that are very different. If you get off a a plane ride in one hour versus in U.S. it's probably more homogenous. Say it's still English. As someone who takes a ferry between Hong Kong and China every other week, it is. It's a microculture shock. Right? Yeah. Like every time, you know, it's still U.S. dollar. It's still the same phone number. You know, when you turn on your phone, it's going to be perfectly fine. But if, you know, in other Asian countries, you get off one hour, you know, you're in Taiwan, you speak a very different language. Uh, you get off, you know, two hours in Shanghai. Again, you speak very different languages and very different type of people. You know, they even within China, you know, that that diversity is much, you know, much stronger. I would say within local kind of like vicinity so um that's what i found is um that the way you distribute softwares and how a certain company could be very successful elsewhere has to adopt to adapt to kind of local rules in asia and china uh likewise in order to really kind of have um benefits um out of those countries investments so you keep all this in mind when working with your clients yeah because your clients are companies seeking your software service yes yeah so like how we talk to again well we, i'm in a slightly different space now um we mainly talk to enterprise so okay. we really have like only enterprise type of users um they make a lot of decisions the the way that they make decisions are might quite different you know for a b2b um, small to medium business SMB type of client is very different from how you make decision at like an enterprise enterprise level right so um, the decision making is slightly different <clears throat> but I would say definitely SMB is a very efficient way of distributing the software and that's how we look at the distribution costs and also which markets to get in. So I want to go back and explore more of the China Hong Kong relationship Even if companies aren't trying to get a piece of China market, there has been some collaboration, right? Um, So what's going on with the Hong Kong startup scene? What's going on in relation to China? Tell us more about that. So I think in the... To be honest, I don't catch up as much on like the Hong Kong startup scene, but I guess I'm one of the ecosystem. um, Well, I'm one in the ecosystem. Uh, there does seem to be a lot more startups uh, happening, and I think a lot of them in Hong Kong do um, do use Hong Kong's advantage to its benefits, uh, such as us um, and you know logistic companies that obviously Hong Kong has very cheap uh, shipping costs uh, to elsewhere. Um, for example, the others are um, mainly I would say 
companies do need to decide why to choose Hong Kong as a base because it is very difficult to hire people. Um, how do you know, like keep a team, you know, rent is extremely expensive, um, much more so than China or any anywhere else in Asia. So you do need to justify that, you know, cost differential and what is the difference that it brings to the client, the business and everything. Um, I would say there are a lot of uh, incubators, uh, accelerators, uh, which we are very proud to be part of. Um, Tell us more about your incubator, accelerator. Yeah. What what sort of inspiration or structure does it help support you with? So accelerate, we went into two accelerators uh, when we were quite um, <clears throat> much earlier. It has really helped us to create a way to be more structural around exploring product market fit and how do we validate those um, hypotheses that we made uh, and whether there is a market to validate whether that exists. So they have given us very structural uh, ways to explore that strategy wise, you know, coming up with business decks, um, coming up with our vision, mission and all that. The other part is also the client relationship. You know, they know a lot of people in the market that they introduce us to. And we have, you know, got our first clients from those programs. So we're incredibly grateful. Um, uh, For the incubator as well, you know, we get a lot of press um, media exposure. We speak at a lot of conferences. Um, We do also get, you know, client referrals uh, from these. So, you know, we've really benefited from the network that they already have. Um, Fundraising as well, that's the same. You know, they also have a lot of investor networks. um, So that has helped us to raise our first seed round. Um, So we're, again, incredibly grateful for that. So I think the, the interesting thing to me about Hong Kong is that there's always very interesting people who've done something before, but you really need to seek them out. Yeah, I call it um, which is a crouching tiger, hidden dragon. Like the movie. Yeah, like I call it that. Like you always kind of find this random person who, I don't know, grew um, grew a huge, you know, travel platform before. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of very interesting people in Hong Kong who's done a lot of things in terms of market expansion or <clears throat> product market fit, you know, like because it, it was not as well defined. Um, so there's a lot of entrepreneurs in Hong Kong that has a wealth of experience or they know a lot of people from US, from uh, China, from uh, Europe in their you know usual business relationships that really help us. So um, something that I always realize is that, yes, what we're doing is quite new, but I don't think what we will be doing like on a business operation level is something that I invented and it's just, you know, how do we find out the best practice that works for us? Um, obviously, a lot of the startup methodologies and those um, do work, but you do need to adapt to local flavors, <laughs> which means Asia. Um, I mean, in Hong Kong, people probably don't care as much about uh, stock sh- uh, options because they haven't seen a lot of companies kind of go IPO. Right. Well, that's what some people are saying that, 
in order to accelerate the Hong Kong startup scene, it seems that there needs to be a unicorn startup exit. And with that, it would put Hong Kong on the map with the likes of San Francisco and Tel Aviv. You know, Tel Aviv had a huge startup scene, but people didn't really see it as credible until Waze made it. So what do you think of that? I do agree. I think um, having worked in a humongous, I've worked in (coughs) humongous companies like uh, financial companies with, you know, over 100,000 people. I've worked with, you know, 30 people, uh, companies in Hong Kong, like a startup. And I've also worked with a thousand people startup in uh, San Francisco. And what I realized is that with San Francisco, it's the focus that you ha- can have your, at your work and everyone has their piece of region and what they do. So it's like the level of detail that you can put in um, executing the different uh, products that is very usable across different industries and also very spe- sometimes very specific to a startup kind of set up. Um, but the company that I work with has already IPO'd. So I think, you know, they've definitely made it. But it's the level of detailness that they can have for anyone who's working in the U.S. office. That makes a huge difference from, you know, a jack of all trades in Hong Kong because it's not as big as a market and you can't justify having one person for just documentation, one person for just taking videos, one person for just making product market um, uh, communication um statements right so it really takes a company to address a market so big and so well um well first of all it has to the market has to justify this market uh this company size and then the company with the revenue that they have and the growth that they have they can afford to have more people and then the people can be more specialized in what they do and when you're more specialized you do better right so i think that that is kind of like how i look at kind of like step by step, you know, if there are exits that happen, um, then it really brings up the entire value chain because people who has to do that is also very good at doing that. And ideally that there will be more of them and then there will be kind of movement around and people, you know, some people can start their own business or they can join another company that does create that kind of value. Now that you're bringing up these business physics, uh, What's it like managing your team? Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like developing people? It's probably a different jump for you. Uh, Managing people is still hard. Um, I'm referring, uh, I'm just uh, reading a lot of the older kind of management books like uh, by Andy Grove, um, the founder of Intel. Um, He has a couple of books that are very good. Peter Drucker, again, another really good executive that talks about, you know, effective executive. So um, as I did think about this, you know, like in detail, and um, it's interesting where I got a lot of the insights from being away from the company. So I was away for two weeks uh, for my honeymoon and what I realized is that because I look at the company in such a detached manner, I do realize a lot of things that I don't do on a daily basis that is probably not at a high leverage standpoint. And managing people is very difficult because everyone is different and everyone would change. And you need to understand that person to a level that you understand how your company is probably only one of the steps that they would eventually become a superstar or a rock star. 
um, that, you know, how you can, you know, keep them, how do you keep everyone in line, how do you communicate those values. Um, so I'm much more aware of what actions I take now on a day-to-day basis and what that conveys to everyone. Um, but that said, I think everyone is trying to scale themselves up. And if I were to scale my management skills faster, it does actually help the company a lot more. Um, and uh, yeah, reading a lot of the more recent books like Radical Candor uh, by Kim and um, having frameworks around how we conduct one-on-one. Tell us a story about something that you've learned. Uh, let me think. Because we learn so much on a daily basis and I'm like learning to... Actually, the one-star experience is something that I've learned. Uh, we have team that has more experience and would kind of look at our company and like, oh, everywhere is just like, um, you know, not happening or like there's always problems. And I'm like, okay, calm down. You do need to look at it. There's, you know, two parts, right? One is, you know, everyone's doing something very impossible here. And I think you need to give credit for everyone who's trying their best on tackling a difficult problem uh, on a daily basis. The other part is having the faith that we can go through this together as a team um, and having that faith. And I think that faith is very, um, it's easy to kind of like let go. It's also very easy to find it back. And I think that is the one thing that I've learned is that you do need to keep that faith, um, however small or however big that is. And, you know, and so that on everyone and that we know that this will be a phase and we will go through this. Um, and I mean, every day you're looking at a new problem. It could be, you know, a burning problem. It could be not as burning. Right. So um, at times we can't, you know, just check off everything on the to do list. You know, we really need to focus on the high leverage ones. So what is, um, again, our founders view on where the market will be, you know, is that the same signals that we're hearing? And if the market is changing, how do we adapt? Uh, I think we do have the agility to adapt to whatever um, the market situation is. And if it's a temporary one, good. If it's, uh, you know, a structural change, okay, we might need to think a lot more about it. Uh, But still, I think having that faith in everyone that they can change and using words as a minor um minor nudge for everyone that you know this is going to be okay we're just we just need to continually improve um and continually learn as a company i think that is really important in the management um kind of stories that i've learned yeah i really like that (laughs) so besides drawing from your own experience where do you get advice from i look to a lot of random things for advice um even, you know, a taxi driver, right? Like something I've realized is that everyone can give you their own opinion and how they looked at things uh, from what they have, you know, experienced before. I listen to podcasts a lot. Awesome. Yeah, which like is my favorite. I do listen to that whenever I get a chance to. And I think it's not mindlessly looking for advice, but really to think how this advice would help tackle a certain problem and being more focused on finding out those uh, specific points Mm. and how do we make a better decision Mm. 
around that. So I would say before looking into advice, I usually figure out what is the best question to ask, um, as in what makes the movers. And if I've made a certain decision after listening to the advice, I do try to lay it out so that people can kind of follow that logic. And, you know, things would change, right? Like if I just say, you know, a rule that, oh, no one can come to uh, work before 7 a.m., you know, it doesn't make sense. It's not really much a blanket rule. Very much a lot of things are consequential and also it's affected by other kind of things. So that's what I realized, you know, with advice, you know, you can ask for as much advice, but it does get a lot of, a bit overwhelming at times. So you do need to figure out what is the core question that you need to ask who's the best person to answer that and how do you take that with adapting to what you have now and I think I would be remiss not uh, asking you about you know people make such a big deal about gender and tech and entrepreneurs do you have a take on that do you think that you face any friction or is there anything that you overcome or is there something that you don't even think about you know, what's your view on all of that? <laughs> yes, that's a fun. Our company is very conscious. I don't know if we're conscious. That's why we find a lot of good people in, uh, uh, in like female. Um, we have around 40% of our company uh, female. So it's much higher as a regular kind of, obviously we're much smaller as well. So yeah, so I would say that that is also probably more skewed towards that. um I don't think about it as much uh to be honest um I don't kind of it was funny I had this uh question last time from a a talk and people are like oh like you know you're a female and I was like yeah I don't kind of wake up and it's like oh I'm female you know I don't really think about it that way (laughs) yeah so I would say um but I'm incredibly lucky being in Hong Kong that I have to say there isn't as much of a difference or preference that people have between my gender or not right like there's people don't I see a lot of people on you know being CEOs country managers and uh I don't see that they devote anything I I would say you know their contributions are the same if not better that you know gain them that position um there isn't as much of a gender kind of imbalance in Hong Kong versus if you, you know, for some of the countries that I've visited, that is much stronger. Um, you know, say for Japan, right? It's very different how you get treated. And um, so I'm incredibly lucky to be in a space where generally people don't uh, look at female in a different manner. Um, and there is a critical mass of people, uh, of female who are working on a day-to-day basis be it a ceo be it you know a clerk um janitor they can do anything yeah so like people do feel that as female that you need you you can do a lot of things it just depends on you and there's also a lot of help in hong kong that you can get you know maybe my mom can help take care of certain things that i don't need to (laughs) worry as much so that does kind of make a difference um but yeah i don't uh there is not as much um, representation in general. Uh, I would say in fintech particularly that a lot of the conferences I go is just like all middle age male, right? <laughs> so I'm like, wow, that's quite a lot of people. But it's not as apparent. Um, I would not. I would say personality probably probably plays a bigger role than 
me being a female or male, right? Like if my personality is more aggressive, it doesn't mean that that naturally I'm female or male, right? It's just more a personality thing than that, you know, it's affected by your gender. So do you think traits like aggression or proactiveness yeah. really help drive forward CEOs? Like I, mm, I would say being resourceful is one. Um, and you can be resourceful as a male or female. <laughs> again, you know, no yeah, it's like, oh, like, let me think of. But yeah, again, you know, I, I'm quite lucky in a way that it hasn't affected me so far. It might pro- affect me in a more profound, profound way later. You know, a lot of statistics say, um, you know, investors tend to uh, like male um, founded companies rather than female founded um, and female founded are a lot less funded uh, than investors. So, you know, that might be a possibility. Uh, but yeah, like so far we have been quite lucky in a way that it doesn't affect our day-to-day work. So yeah, we're lucky for that. <laughs> what are you looking forward to? In life? Anything. Uh, learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, day-to-day that's learning. Um, I'm looking forward to actually using operation as an advantage to our company and um, testing our hypothesis on the world. Basically letting everyone converse in their local and native language. And I think that's the least that we can do to preserve like a culture. Great. Love that. I think we'll wrap here. Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Questions, suggestions, inquiries can be sent to ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time. So a lot of people start calling me Claire, which gets very confusing. <laughs> I'm like, hey, Claire. And I'm like, okay, they should be asking about me. <laughs>